back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping, keeping it sports, sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It's time for Keeping Sports to an M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope everything's going well for you here on this Tuesday, the third day of January. You know, I wish I could sit here today and be more excited. I could sit here today and be the last amongst many to wish you all a happy and healthy new year. But you have to forgive me if I seem a bit distracted, if I seem like my mind is in a different place today because while yes this is a sports podcast and there's going to be plenty of sports i talk about for the next hour or so here sometimes things in the sports world supersede the actual game sometimes things in the sports world are far far more important than the action we see on the playing field, the court, the ice, whatever realm of sports is of your interest, the octagon, the racing track, whatever. Sometimes there are things that happen that have us force us to take a step back and realize how precious life truly is. And I used to think that we've seen it all. I used to think that, oh, we've seen the worst that there could possibly be in the sports world when it comes to life in general. We've seen things such as a, a pitcher take a line drive off the head more times than I've wanted to see. Batters getting hit by pitches in the head. Uh, players across all four sports tear their ACLs on non-contact injuries. Uh, the well, In the NFL, I used to think that the worst thing that I've seen was uh, between Alex Smith uh, the, suffering the Joe Theismann injury on thir- the 33-year anniversary of his injury or Luke Keekley being carted off the field after concussion in tears but having no idea where the hell he was at that moment in time. And then earlier this year, when Tua Tagovailoa had his second concussion in about a four-day span, and you're seeing his body convulsing on the field. And while all of those are frightening scenes, that all compels in comparison to what we saw last night. What we witnessed last night on Monday Night Football was the most terrifying, the most horrific moment I've ever seen when it comes to the world of sports. And 
it, it's one of those moments where you just throw sports out the window and you're just far more concerned about a person's life. Because you know, we went into last night expecting arguably the game of the year between the Bills and the Bengals. A game that could decide home field advantage throughout the AFC side of the postseason. And what we came away with is instead sitting here praying, hoping beyond hope that a young man's life can continue. Because it seemed like the most benign thing. You're watching it live with DeMar Hamlin uh, his tackle on T. Higgins seemed like any typical tackle that we see any given week in an NFL game. And then when you watch the replay of it, you watch him stand up and then life just completely leave his body and he falls to the ground like that. That was scary. That was as I said, horrific to see. And I can only imagine how his family must feel because he had his mom, he had family members at that game last night. This is a guy that was a sixth-round draft pick, but through his hard work and through some injuries on that team, had gained playing time and was in the starting lineup uh, a lot this year. Just like... Any one of them out on that field, anybody in any walk of life, he's just out there trying to make a living for himself, for his family, trying to make his life better, just as we all are in whatever walk of life that we are. And now you're just, you're left wondering, you're you're left praying that his life can continue. Because, you know, and it, it really hits you because... We've seen guys get carted off the field in the NFL four more times than we uh, care to remember. It feels like we see at least five or six guys, and maybe that's on the low end, getting carted off in some form each and every single week. Some because of a lower body injury, some because of a concussion and they're in the full backboard stretcher. Uh, neck brace. But when you see that scene last night and for 10 minutes we're left wondering what the hell's going on? You see the entire Bills team on the field surrounding him. We see medical personnel that are working on him. And then after about nine or 10 minutes, Joe Buck comes on the broadcast and tells us that they were giving this kid CPR on the field. I I don't know how you could not be a human being and not, you know, have emotion, not be shedding a tear for him, for his family, for, uh, you know, the the Bills team. Because that that team, they're more than a team. They're like a family with, with how... There's really not that much nightlife in Buffalo, New York. They spend a lot of time together. And when you started seeing the camera going around, seeing tears dripping down the faces of Stefan Diggs, Sean McDermott, Josh Allen, you're like, this is before we even knew the news. You're like, 
this is worse than any anything that could possibly be creeping in our minds. Normally, like I said, with a, when a guy gets his bell rung, when a guy gets knocked out, usually they're on the ground for five, six minutes. They put him on the stretcher and they wheel him out of there. And we get the thumbs up from him, letting him know, having him let all of us know that he's got okay, that he's going to be okay. And then you're seeing their reactions, and we never got that thumbs up. And like I said, they hear the reactions of Joe Buck once he told us that he had CPR and that he uh, had oxygen attached to him. They go back to the studio. You see the the real life reactions of the like of Susie Kohlberg, uh, Booger McFarlane, uh, Adam Schefter, and you just re- remind yourself: football doesn't matter right now. This game doesn't matter. I I don't you know that there's mixed reports on whether or not. The NFL wanted them to continue that game last night. I I don't know what to believe. I've heard it from both sides. But there was no way possible to continue that game. No one on either side, coach, player, even fans that were in that building, were in any mental, emotional state to continue it. And there's a time and a place to to decide if or when they decide to continue that game if how or when they decide to continue uh the, the NFL season if this week goes on as scheduled if they have to postpone things whatever but the most important thing the most important thought that should be on all of our minds right now is Demar Hamlin because yeah that they were able to get his heart working again. And that, that's what pe- people don't understand. He, on that hit, it happened in between heartbeats, and that set him into cardiac arrest. That meant his heart stopped pumping and oxygen stopped being sent to his brain. They, they in getting his heart pumping again, probably saved him from what, could be severe, 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 unrepairable brain damage. And let's face it, he, he's he's not out of the worst of it yet because he's laying in a hospital bed oh, right now. He's in you know a sedated state in critical condition. Essentially, that means you know he's in a coma, and we don't know when. Or if he's going to wake up. We don't know when or if he's going to be able to continue this thing that at times we take for granted. This thing that at times I don't think we relish or appreciate enough known as human life. And you, you see the outcry of support across the sports world with every team tweeting out prayers for, for DeMar Hamlin. You seeing athletes all across the, the world tweeting out their support. And then 
the overwhelming generosity by fans. Because two years ago, before he got into the NFL, he started a fundraiser for a toy drive. And his initial goal was $2,500. That's $2,500. And the one, it, you know, it, it, you wish it didn't take things like this. But w- once this happened, his his fundraiser was made a little bit more public. His GoFundMe page was shared around social media and not just amongst Bill's Mafia, but sports fans across the country, across the world began donating. And now it's somewhere after starting last night at $2,500, it's somewhere between three and $4 million right now as we speak. But... I spent all night refreshing social media, hoping for an update. I spent all morning watching TV, hope, saying a prayer. You know, we're probably not going to know anything for hours, maybe even days. You know, we take for granted this thing called life, people. We take for granted football. That you know, that the fact that yeah, it's there to entertain us every Sunday, but. They're still human beings. We forget that sometimes because they make so much more money, because they live a, a fancier lifestyle than most of us. But the end, at the end of the day, they still have blood running through them. They still have heartbeats. They still have families like you and I. And you just hope that I, to hell with whatever happens if he ever plays again. Or if this game ever gets continued, that, that none of that even even matters. And what matters is that he wakes up, that Demar Hamlin wakes up, is is able to continue on with a normal, living, breathing life. And it's it's just so scary to to think about because we we hear stories all the time about someone having a heart attack, someone going into cardiac arrest. And a lot of the times it's people, you know, when when we hear it for celebrities, for famous people, we see a lot of these stories, far too many of them, where it happens where they're in their 50s or early 60s. And they're like, oh, damn, that's way too young. Especially for if they... Didn't survive it. People, we're talking about a 24-year-old. A 24-year-old who, yeah, by legal terms, he's a man. He's an adult. But, now that ambulance waited for his mom to come out of the stands last night so she could accompany her son to the hospital. That's her baby boy. That's her son. Now, no matter how old we get, as long as we have our parents in our lives, we're always their children. We're always their baby. So, no, as I said, I'm going to try and talk sports today. I'm going to try and, you know, have a positive mindset, try to show some excitement when talking 
uh, sports as the hour goes on here. But as I'm doing that, Tamar Hamlet's going to be in my thoughts and prayers. His family is going to be in my thoughts and prayers because, you know, the last thing anyone wants to see is this kid's life end this soon. He's 24. And like I said before, the hell if he ever plays football again. He has far too much of life ahead of him. And you just hope that he gets to experience that and that it wasn't all taken away from him on one flukish moment last Monday night, right before all of our eyes. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot edit and post videos you become a pretty hot commodity that's the training you get at connecticut school of broadcasting connecticut school of broadcasting with locations up and down the east coast from massachusetts to miami call 1-800 tv radio or log on to gocsb.com connecticut school of broadcasting the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools redefining training in radio tv and new media get trained get connected 1-800-TV-RADIO. Like I've said, I'm going to do my best to go about doing uh, this podcast today. We'll see if when I do the final edits, I decide to put any music in it beyond the opening uh, theme song. But let's get to some sports where I figured that today the... I don't know if I want to call this sad when you, you, you compare the things, but I figured that the least happy thing I was going to talk about when it comes to the NFL today would be the retirement of J.J. Watt. And I say least sad uh, because, or, or most sad because of the fact that he's walking away on his own terms, but we don't get to watch him play football anymore he's still well he's not at the height of heights as he once was uh when he was with the houston texans and trust me if you if you missed the first half of this career you really missed out because he was a a force he was one of the most dominant defensive ends of this generation he no he's not up there in the likes of a no, LT, uh, Reggie White, Bruce Smith, any, any of those guys. Those, those guys are in a pantheon of their own right. But J.J. Watt wrote himself a Hall of Fame career and did it the, the entire time while not just being a dominant player because you look at his numbers across the board, uh, over 112 sacks in his career, uh, Almost 200 tackles for a loss, uh, close to 30 forced fumbles, 
even had a couple of touch up uh, interception returns for touchdowns, and that's as a defensive end. And he was a three-time uh, Defensive Player of the Year, five-time first-team All-Pro, and even led the NFL in sacks twice. He's the only player in history to have two 20-plus sack seasons. It, the cherry on top of all of that is he's a great guy. It, it, and, and it's not every day. You know, a lot of these guys you know, in the world of sports, they do good things. They uh, handle themselves pretty well. Every, every once in a while, you get that bad apple that you know, is just a disgusting human being, even without doing something illegal. But th- this guy was a very charitable man, as most uh, players across the sports world are. Even so much, you know, you saw his charitability, his kindness with the relief fund that he started in efforts to help the Houston area after Hurricane Harvey. And, you know, it that's even during a time where his season was ended early uh, due to a lower leg injury, but... He he's always just been such a, a stand up guy on and off the field. Someone that is well respected, well uh, thought of, highly appreciated ac- across the league. Doesn't seem like there's too too many people that have a bad word to say about him. And you know, I wish he was continuing on playing football because even at this stage of his career, twelve years in, he's still. A remarkable talent, still getting the job done. A lot of people thought he he was probably a snub for the Pro Bowl week this year. Maybe there's some uh, injuries that nagging that he's dealing with that he doesn't want to get too too worse because remember he does have a uh, a young child at home that he wants to be a significant part of their life. But I'm glad that he's walking away on his own terms and that he's not being forced out due to some crippling injury that will affect the rest of his life. And while that is on the happier side of things here, you know, I had to get to this because Before yesterday, this was the only thing football-wise I was thinking about. I was put out of my misery on Sunday by the New York Jets. I wasn't even taken till week 18 with thinking, oh, maybe they got a shot at the postseason. No, they decided to kill any hope of that on Sunday afternoon. And listen, the game felt like it was over against Seattle before you even sat down and popped open your beer. I mean, within a, a blink of an eyeball, it, it's a 17-3 game. And the Jets never felt competitive. It never felt like they came off the bus, came off the plane, ready to truly compete in this game w- uh, with the Seattle Seahawks. Seattle, who had just 
spinning just as much of a tailspin as the Jets, losing five out of six games coming into this matchup after a six and three start. They were at uh, seven and eight as well with their postseason life uh, clinging uh, by a hair. And Seattle came in and ran the football right down the Jets' throat. I mean, the first play from scrimmage, uh, Kenneth Walker runs 60 yards right uh, down the Jets' face. And I mean, it felt over after that one drive. I and mean, you're watching this team defensively, they're missing tackles left and right. Now that they continued their recent trend of failing to get turnovers. And listen, most Jet fans wanted this guy back out there as the quarterback, but Mike White was awful. And I feel bad saying that because I like the guy. I think he's a stand-up guy. He's never made excuses, always held himself accountable, unlike some quarterbacks on that team have, unless they were shamed into accountability. But Mike White probably cost himself a few million dollars uh on Sunday, because even if the Jets had missed the postseason, but White played great these last two weeks, they they won, and he gave him every shot. Then you could have at least gone into next year on the argument of saying, "All right, let's give Mike White a two-year, twenty-two to twenty-four million dollar uh, contract, and have him be our bridge quarterback." Just some stability because he looks like he can run this offense better than any quarterback that has been out there the last couple of years. Well, he blew that chance with uh, three turnovers uh, on Sunday. I don't know why they had him throw the ball 46 times, especially when you consider he didn't look right. Yeah, he was wearing the rib protector, but he was probably only at about 65, 70%. And you, you appreciate the guy trying. You appreciate the guy going out there, putting, trying to put up a gutsy effort, knowing that this is not just for the Jets' postseason lives. This is for his career. But he probably should not have been out there on Sunday. The better course would have been to go with Joe Flacco, Although, who knows how much mentally he was into it, considering it seemed like he had mentally checked out when they put him in in relief in that Bills game. I mean, just all the way around, between defensive errors, Mike White's poor play, you had poor special teams play with no Braxton Berrios allowing a punt to be downed at the Jets' one-yard line uh, with a minute to go before half. We've seen that far too many times with Braxton this year where he's calling a fair catch and let it drop rather than taking a shot and maybe you get lucky and get the Jets into a position to you know steal a cheap three points right before halftime. And then you know, you know Zerline misses uh, a field goal to start the third quarter. From there, it was just... It, it was like watching a team just slowly, painfully fade away. It was a microcosm of what has been the last month and a half for this team. Because November 27th, November 27th, the week of Thanksgiving, that was when the Jets beat the Chicago Bears. The infamous Mike White game part two. 
And I was uh, sitting there oh, in the middle of a torrential downpour. Jets are 7-4 and four after a, a week of dealing with all the Zach Wilson nonsense. A, a, a week after a horrible loss in New England where they only had 100 yards of total offense. And I actually felt good about the Jets. I thought, all right, 7-4, and four, they've got their playoff destiny in their hands. Go 3-3 three and three at worst down the stretch and you're in. Well, they haven't won another game since then. And they've, in all likelihood, they're not going to win on Sunday. They're not going to rise up and try and spool the Dolphins season. I'm, I'm still waiting to see how many guys actually check out on this team in the next couple of days and are not playing for them on Sunday afternoon. But they're going to hit my preseason projected record for them. Preseason, I thought they were going to be a 7-10 and 10 kind of team. This is not the way I wanted to get the 7-10 and 10 people. I thought they would be a cute, feisty team that would improve along the way, but they were far ahead of schedule, far ahead of the schedule when it comes to the quarterbacks on this team and when it comes to the head coach. And, you know, that's a lot of the things that they're going to have to answer for going into this offseason. Now, we'll have plenty of time to talk about that in this, but this will probably be the last time I talk about the Jets before we get into the offseason. You've got questions on who's going to be the quarterback. I mean, Flacco's going to be retired. Chris Shreveler, please. He's a he's a practice squad guy, unless he flips to being a fullback or a linebacker or something. Mike White, you know, the fans fell in love with him after a game against the Bengals last year and uh, a game against the Bears this year, but he might be a little bit fair, unfair, fragile to be a starting quarterback when you consider in the the next game or the next game or two after those uh, uh, big games, he got hurt. And then who knows where Zach Wilson is mentally? Who knows if Zach Wilson's going to be here? You've seen differing reports in the last week. Jay Glazer saying that the organization is done and has lost confidence in him. And then uh, Ian Rappaport counter that on Sunday saying uh, that Joe Douglas still views him in his plans. And listen, while Zach Wilson was bad, handled himself awful this year, he's not the only one to blame for this. He's a big part of the blame because we're all accountable for our own actions in not just sports, but in life. But Joe Douglas and in particular Robert Sala have got to answer a lot here. For one, Robert Sala, you know, he could defend him to the high heavens. But Mike LaFleur has got to go. Mike LaFleur did an awful job in trying to develop this young quarterback. I mean, that, that's the only thing I can think of here. The fact that you have every other quarterback that has played for this team in the last two years, the other four quarterbacks, White, Flacco, Shrevler, Johnson, all of them in their playing time looked acceptable, beyond acceptable at times, running this offense. And Zach Wilson 
couldn't get it. I'd, clearly, he's doing something different with them compared to Zach Wilson. Either that or he's just not teaching Zach Wilson in the right way. And when you have a rookie quarterback, when you have a quarterback that was the number two overall pick in the draft, you should not be bringing in a guy that is a rookie at being his offensive coordinator or being an offensive coordinator in general to be the one that molds him, to be the one that teaches him the way in this league. And, you know, Robert Sala, his fate, fair unfair, should be attached to Mike LaFleur. Because, well, Robert Sala, I think, is is an acceptable coach. He still has some growing to do, especially when it comes to calling timeouts and when it comes to controlling a locker room because that's another thing here with Zach Wilson. I mean, say what you want about Zach Wilson, but Robert Sala put a, should have put uh, an end to the Mike White stuff from the very beginning. It He should not have allowed this, as I called first guessed it when it happened he should not have allowed this to become a 52 versus one situation where you have the entire team whether it's road games home games walking around um in their free time wearing mike effing white t-shirts he should have been like listen we know to the veterans on that team you guys gotta go to your respective units your respective groups we know you're all excited about Mike White. We know you all love Mike White. But Zach Wilson's still on this team as well. You cannot, you know, have one guy feel like they're just completely excluded, outcasted from this team. Because at some point, we may need to go back to him. And that doing this could mentally break him, could mentally destroy him. And that's what it did. You saw Zach Wilson go back out there. And at the moment that there was even a little bit adversity, he fell apart. He crumbled. And you can't tell me that that didn't play a role in any of this. But Robert saw his future now has to be attached to his willingness to fire Mike LaFleur. I don't care that Mike LaFleur and his older brother... Packers head coach uh, Matt LaFleur are his best friends. I don't care if those guys have like a brother-like relationship. This is a business. Sometimes you got to make difficult decisions. And one of those difficult decisions would should be at the end of this year, looking uh, Mike LaFleur in the face and saying, I still love you like a brother, but I've got to replace you. Otherwise, if he can't do that, Robert Sala is not the man for the job here. And while I like Joe Douglas and his the way he's constructed this roster, he's got some tough decisions ahead of him as well because the Jets only have $15 million in cap space this coming offseason. They've got to make a decision on quarterback, and in all likelihood, they got to go the veteran route. You cannot, with the way this roster is right now, with the emergence of all of these young players, that most of whom that you've drafted, with their emergence, with the talent you have on this team, they're ready to compete. They're ready to fight for a playoff spot. You can't give them another development guy. You can't have another situation where you're de- trying to develop a quarterback at the same time as winning. If it, whether 
you continue on with Zach Wilson or you draft the quarterback in the third or fourth round uh, this coming draft, you they have to be sitting there behind a veteran quarterback. You know, they're learning while that quarterback is leading this team to the playoffs next year. And playoffs have to be a mandate if Robert Sala is back. If he's not back, that means he wasn't willing to fire Mike LaFleur. And listen, that's going to open the doors that many fans want to walk through. Many fans, they hear that and they're like, Ooh, that's fun. That's interesting. You know, you're going to hear the names in the next couple of weeks. The likes of Sean Payton. The likes of Jim Harbaugh. But they're going to have plenty of options as well. And in the case of Sean Payton, you've got to trade pieces to the Saints. He's still under Saints contractual control. So you're going to have to give up something to get him. But both Sean Payton... And Jim Harbaugh, if they're ready to get back into NFL coaching, if Jim Harbaugh is ready to move on from Michigan, they're going to have plenty of options ahead of them. The Denver Broncos are going to be looking for a head coach. The Cardinals are likely going to be looking for a head coach. We'll see what happens with the Panthers, whether they stick with Steve Wilkes or they uh, decide to go big name hunting for a head coach. The Colts, because they can't stick with Jeff Saturday. That's a disaster. Hell, there may be a playoff team or two that has a quick exit and decides to make a change. Whether it be somebody like the Chargers or if the the Dolphins get in. Hell, the Dolphins, we've seen one-year wonders all the time. The Dolphins, with how they've collapsed, they may decide to make a move as well. There's always a surprise here or two when it comes to the coaching carousel. So you're going to have a lot of people to go up against. And... There's going to be a lot of questions to answer when it comes to this team, but it's just another depressing, heartbreaking way for a jet season to end. You know, something that seems so promising about a month and a half ago, once again, turned into total crap, total garbage. And you, see, you know, if you're watching the live feed, you see me sitting here wearing my Jets hoodie. I just wonder, when does it end? When does this nonsense end? When do we get to a point where I can sit there and actually be not just proud to be a season ticket holder, but a lifelong fan of this team and not walk around embarrassed wearing my Jets gear? Got plenty left to go here. Give you some more thoughts on the rest of the NFL and college football as we go on here. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Still no update as I was checking Twitter during a break there to DeMar Hamlin still in critical condition in the hospital surrounded by his family and you just as I said before you just pray that he gets better and he, he gets out of this and can continue on with his life 
and we'll see if the NFL continues on with the schedule as going to be in week 18. I think, I think a lot of it's going to depend on, you know, what happens with him the next couple of days. If, you know, if, if we get to Thursday or Friday and there's good news, then I, I think it will be all systems go, but heaven forbid, and I, I, I shudder to even think like this, but if the worst possible outcome does manifest itself, I don't think anyone would blame them if they just push the entire season off by one week. I mean, they do have that built-in week into the Super, into the Super Bowl schedule as it is. So, and like I said, human life is more important than any football game. But we're going to try and carry on here as best as possible, uh, talking about the action that went down in week 17 where a couple of teams did clinch a playoff berth where a couple of teams were able uh, to take that next step toward the ultimate goal of possibly playing on Super Bowl Sunday. First, I want to give credit to the team that the Jets share MetLife Stadium with. The New York Giants, who clinched a playoff bid on Sunday afternoon with a blowout performance over the Colts. And a couple people you got to give a lot of credit here to. One, Brian Dayball, who set a new tone, a new mindset with this team from day one. I mean, from week one on, there was a different belief, a different feel in that organization, especially, you know, they get what looked like it was going to be a game-tying touchdown and settle for overtime in week one against Tennessee. That's what most teams would do, but he's like, to hell with it. Let's go for it. Let's take a shot here. It's a do-or-die proposition here, but let's go for it. Doing that, emboldened that team and emboldened that coach, showing that, hey, we are a team that has a different mindset. It's a new day here in Giants football. And the other person, of course, you got to give credit to is Daniel Jones, who a lot of us were ready to run out of town. A lot of us had been saying that, oh, he's a bum, that he can't play. The Giants got to move on and find their next quarterback. Well, the Giants' next quarterback is Daniel Jones. While statistically, as far as touchdowns and yardage go uh, this year. It's not sexy how many uh, touchdowns, how many yards that he threw for. You watch these games, you realize his true value to his team and how, you know, Dable and company put him in the best position to succeed. They, they got him out of the pocket at times, set him up with design runs, showed that he can be... No, a dual threat at quarterback. No, maybe not to the level of a Lamar Jackson or Jalen Hurts, somewhere like that, but showed why maybe uh, Dave Gettleman was not the dumbest human being in the world for drafting him sixth overall. That there is actual ability there, and if you set things up for him, he can succeed. And listen, he showed a lot of toughness during uh, this offseason 
when you consider the fact that he uh, went into training camp and there were no guarantees that he was getting this job. There was no guarantees that this job was going to be his. Remember, they brought in Tyrod Taylor. And as the story goes uh, this past week, that he was put in a spot in training camp in the battles that uh, they were setting plays up for him to purposely fail. And he showed toughness to overcome. The story I I was told this week is uh, at training camp, he was giving Wink Martindale what plays they were going to run beforehand so Wink Martindale could set up a defense that could counter that. Meanwhile, when Tyrod Taylor was out there, he wasn't telling them what their offensive plan was, what their play uh, was. And he showed a lot of grit, a lot of toughness uh, this year when it seemed like the entire, not just Giant fan base, but most of the sports world was ready to give up on him, ready to look at him as a lost cause. Give him a lot of credit for how he battled adversity here. Now, the the other team that uh, clinched the playoff spot was, unfortunately, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And what an idiot I am for believing for just a second that the Panthers were going to save us. For believing that there was a chance. Because the Panthers were up 14-0 early on in this game. And even though Sam Darnold, for the most part, played well, as the game went on, he threw up on himself. Had a couple of uh, turnovers that allowed the uh, Buccaneers right back into this game. And seemingly the Panthers' defense forgot that, oh yeah, Mike Evans plays football. And he burnt them left and right in the, the second half of this game. And the Buccaneers, for the first time this year, look like the Buccaneers that they were supposed to be. You, you look at this and you're like, you know, about damn time. Like, where was this all year? Why did we have to sit through this snore fest, this slog of a football team? Where was this explosive offense with Evans dominating on one side, with Goddard on the other, with Brady, you know, throwing darts down the field? Where the hell was this all damn year? Instead, we had to be put through you know, 16 weeks of a crap fest from this team where they would play like absolute dog crap for the first 50 minutes or so and all of a sudden uh, wake up and seven or eight times there say, hey, you know what? We feel like winning a football game and let's take advantage of this year's absolutely worst division of all time because It shouldn't have been this case where you have three teams that could all lose 10 games, all still alive for the postseason in Week 17. We should have been talking about the Buccaneers and competing for the one seed rather than them competing uh, for the four seed and just barely getting into the postseason. Now, the one seed is not as big a guarantee as it once was. Because the Eagles have started to fall apart on us here, people. The Eagles 
since Jalen Hurts went down. And to me, this would be the biggest example of why Jalen Hurts is the, the MVP of this league. I know they're going to give it to Patrick Mahomes. But Jalen Hurts, you've seen how this team has reacted the last two weeks without him. People, they can't run the football. They were averaging, you know, buck 60 on the ground every game with Jalen Hurts. They're barely getting 70 yards a game rushing each of the last two weeks without him. They have no ground game whatsoever. They're missing that dual threat at the quarterback position. Well, Gardner Minshew hasn't been. No, he he hasn't been the worst thing of all time. He's certainly hasn't inspired anybody into thinking that, hey, you know what? He did a good job filling in for the Eagles. Maybe that's who I should turn to in looking for a quarterback next year. Because he's throwing uh, interceptions at the worst possible time. The Eagles were working on a comeback there late in this game. And once he threw that pick six to Marshawn Lattimore, who hadn't played since September, you're like, all right, we're done here. Let's move on. The the Eagles now they're you know just barely trying to hold on to the one seed. At when a month ago it seemed like a foregone conclusion. It's no good foregone conclusion anymore, everyone, because we'll see you know whether the Giants are gonna play everybody this week or not. We'll see whether Jalen Hurts plays this week or not. But if the Eagles lose on Sunday against the Giants, then the door creeps open for both the 49ers and the Dallas Cowboys. The division hasn't even been clinched yet. If Dallas wins on Sunday against the Commanders and the Eagles lose, they get the division. And they get the one seed if not just they win, Eagles lose, but also the 49ers lose. The 49ers who are going up against the Cardinals and uh, that mess of a football team, they're probably licking their chops saying that, hey, all we got to do is take care of the Cardinals at home, and if the Eagles slip up one more time, the NFC side of the postseason is going through San Francisco. But no, that's not the only thing on the line this coming week here in Week 18. You still got... One final spot in uh, the AFC side of the wild card where Patriots win and they're in. Or if there's a loss by the Steelers um, and either uh, the Dolphins or the Jaguars, either the Dolphins lose and the Jaguars win, they get in. Dolphins need to beat the Jets and the Patriots lose. And the Steelers you know, a month and a half ago, two months ago, they were two and six, and now we sit here. They're a 500 football team, uh, thanks to you know taking advantage of a Lamarless uh, Baltimore Ravens team, and now all they got to do is beat the Browns on Sunday, and get a couple of losses by. Uh, the Patriots and Dolphins, which I don't think is going to happen. I don't think the Dolphins are losing to the Jets. Otherwise, you know, Mike Tomlin, the job he's done, considering the quarterback position that year, considering he's been without uh, T.J. Watt for most of this season, he's done a remarkable job with this team. The fact that he's got him at 500 after what what was a you know garbage start to this year, after they blew some winnable games earlier in this year, he deserves a lot of credit. I mean, just why he's one of the best three or four coaches in this sport. And 
why you know uh, people who criticize him on TV, Terry Bradshaw, need to really grow a brain and realize this guy has done a phenomenal job his entire tenure there. Yeah, he hasn't won as many Super Bowls as Belichick, but when you consider some of the injuries, he's had to deal with some of the off-field nonsense, whether it be Ben's suspensions, Antonio Brown nonsense, uh, the change of quarterback here this year, injuries that have uh, taken place, the fact that they've had to completely turn over this roster time and time again over the last 15 years, and for him to still not having a losing season, a remarkable job by him. And you know, on Saturday night, we've got the AFC South on the line, Jaguars versus Titans. I would be very surprised if the Titans win this game to win the division. That you know, they have nothing going for them at the quarterback spot right now. They, you know, for all those people who like to mock and take Ryan Tannehill for granted, he's at least a stabilizer. He's well, he's not overly impressive in his physical abilities. He brings a calmness, a presence to that team that they haven't been able to replicate since he got hurt. I mean, uh, Malik Willis can't throw the football. And, you know, God bless Josh Dobbs, but isn't this like the sixth or seventh team he's been on? He's he's jumped around this league so much that, you know, I don't know what you can expect from the Titans at the quarterback position when they're without their top guy out there. And, you know, with the momentum that the Jaguars have going for them, the fact that they've lost once in the last five games, why should I believe that they are going to not win this division? I mean, Doug Peterson, that could have, he could have just called off the dogs and said that was a uh, giveaway game last week against uh, the Texans. But they went out there and took no prisoners and showed that, hey, we're in this to win this. And they could be a dangerous team, a dangerous underdog in uh, this uh, postseason, someone that, you know, it's a pain in the ass if they get by one of the wild card teams in the first round, and and in all likelihood they would be the four seed. Gonna be a pain in the ass for someone to deal with in that second round. I talk about pain in the ass. You've got three teams competing for one spot in that wild card for the NFC, and whoever gets that last spot is going to be a pain in the ass. In particular, if it comes out of the NFC North, because. Good for Seattle taking advantage of the Jets on Sunday, but I don't see them uh, being uh, a big threat to anyone in the postseason. If one of those teams in the NFC North, the Packers or the Lions, who are playing on Sunday Night Football this week, if one of those two teams isn't that final playoff team, the 49ers or whoever that two seed is in the NFC is not just going to have easy cakewalk to the second round. It's not going to just be able to walk through them uh, like they're yesterday's leftovers. Because I know the 49ers have been the kryptonite for the Packers the, the last several years. But the Packers have started to figure themselves out recently. Uh, and Rodgers has gotten some of these young wide receivers to emerge for him. As well as, you know, 
the Lions, you know, they may not make it. It's going to take a lot for them to make it. They got a win in Green Bay and get a Seahawks uh, loss to the Rams. But I, I've said this plenty of times, whether it be direct messaging an old buddy of mine from high school, shout out to Billy August, who is a diehard uh, Detroit Lions fan, or you know, talk about this on this podcast. The Lions, you know, that they've got a collection of Know, decent talent there. Now that not a lot of pro bowlers, not a lot of people that you know you, you're going to be pushing past to draft in the first couple of rounds of your fantasy draft. But you know, good quality talent there. But they rise their game. They rise the level of their play for that head coach. We thought Dan Campbell was just some big lunatic when he took that job with the way he was talking at his introductory press conference. But he gets those guys to compete for him. He gets those guys to play for him. He gets the absolute best out of this crew. And that's, you know, besides the X's and O's, that's what you want out of your head coach. You want somebody that is going to, you know, take your team to a far different level than you expect them to be at. You want them to be able to look at a group of men and be able to lead them. And Dan Campbell is that emotional rally cry. He is that emotional leader for this crew. So whether they make the postseason or not, this has been a fun year if you're a Lions fan. And you know, you've got things to look forward to in the future, especially if Jared Goff does not opt out of his contract. But it's a rare year that even if you make the don't make the postseason, you can look back on this and be proud of it and be excited about things uh, to come in the near future. Go take one last break here, come back on the other side and close things up with talking about the college football playoff. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Before I get to talking about the college football playoff, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't spend a moment or two talking about the passing that took place last week with soccer legend Pele. You know, in all facets of life, sports, entertainment, music, um, you know, politics, we always talk about, oh, if I could have dinner with three famous people from the past, who would that be? Well, when it comes to the world of sports, one of those people for me, even though he only just died last week, has always been Pele. Now, he's one of the most recognizable names in all of sports. Even if you're not a soccer fan, you hear that name, you know who he is, you know who you're talking about? Probably the greatest soccer player of all time. And many people don't realize Pele is not even his real name. It was a nickname. His real name is Edison 
Arantes do Nacimento. I hope I pronounced that right. He he was born on October 23rd, 1940, same year that my father was born. And even though we view him as this larger-than-life figure, this all-time uh, great goal scorer who, even though he was a great goal scorer, he was a tenacious worker, um, had great vision of the field and uh, you know, wasn't a selfish player, recognized when teammates had the better opportunity to score and was intelligent about his passing. Even was the that was the biggest part of his reputation as I was reading the last couple of days because too young to remember him uh, playing. He also had a reputation for being a decisive player uh, for his teammates and um, his tendency to score crucial goals, but not be selfish about it, not be where, oh, I got to be the one that makes the big shot, realizing that, oh, if somebody else has the better opportunity, I'm going to get the ball to them. But with all that, you look at all of the goals he scored, all the assists he had, the the championships, the individual honors. We think about him as this uh, larger-than-life figure. He was an average-sized human being. He was only about 5'8". He was about my size. And doing uh, all of uh, that he accomplished as a professional adds a, a, a little bit more to it uh, for me. It come away a little bit more impressed than it would be if you know you got someone who's like six five and built like an Adonis, and just it comes easy, comes natural to them. He had to work for everything that he accomplished as a player. And you you look at some of the individual honors he had. Uh, inducted into the American National Soccer Hall of Fame in 92. In 99 was voted by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most important people of the 20th century. Uh, in 97, he uh, received knighthood from uh, Queen Elizabeth II. He was also awarded Brazil's gold medal for outstanding service to the sport in 1995. And so many, the list is endless, the accomplishments this guy had on and and off the field. He was just a great humanitarian, an all-time, not, not just great athlete, but great person. And, you know, 82, well... No, we all have that magical dream of living to the triple digits. 82, that's a remarkable life. You've seen a lot. You've seen almost it all during uh, your lifetime. And I wish he didn't have to go in such a painful way, unfortunately, pass due to uh, uh, complications from uh, colon cancer that he had been uh, battling for the last year or so. You wish that would have been uh, just... Uh, you know, old age that had taken him, but what a career, what a life. Someone that is talked about all across the the sports world, all across the entertainment world. You now people do something crazy in the, um, you know, football or basketball. They're saying, oh, that's a Pele-like move. Like, especially when you see people do the, the, uh, the back flip kick, they say that, uh, uh, they're pulling a Pele. Hell, you've even seen uh, 
in the the entertainment world like as you guys know my second favorite uh interest as far as television is concerned is pro wrestling there are guys that do that backflip kick as a, a wrestling move and they they call it the pele so now he's had a great impact not just on soccer but sports entertainment and life in general and we say goodbye and god bless you pele on a remarkable life and a remarkable playing career. Now, over the weekend, we had the college football semifinals for the playoffs. And in the past, this has been a total dud. In the past, this has been a total snore. Because since the playoff began eight or nine years ago now, we had only had three games that finished in single digits. The Sugar Bowl in 2014-2015 with Ohio State beating Alabama. That was the year where they had uh, lost both of their quarterbacks leading into uh, that game and had to go with third-string Cardell Jones to not just uh, beat Alabama, but blow out Oregon in uh, the national championship. His career would you know, kind of fizzle after that, and we haven't heard much from him since. But that was uh, a remarkable run to start off uh, the the tenure of the playoff. I believe that was actually the first year of the playoff. Then in 2017-2018, you had Georgia uh, come back from trailing uh, 17 against uh, Oklahoma to defeat them in double overtime, uh, 54-48. They, though, would go on to uh, blow a two-touchdown lead in uh, the national championship to Alabama and uh, lose that. And then just a couple of years ago, before the pandemic, uh, when uh, Clemson uh, defeated Ohio State in the Fiesta Bowl, but uh, got blown out by that dominant LSU team led by you know, the Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson, and th- that crew in what was one of the greatest teams that we've ever seen. So these have been few and far between, but we got two great games this past weekend, including, you know, TCU. The, the number one thing I want to see out of TCU is them showing that they could compete, that they deserved to be here. Even if they lost, like, show us you deserve to be here. Shut the Alabama fans up from whining, crying, complaining that, eh, we should have been in the playoff. We're all tied. Yeah, you can roll tied your ass on out of here because the TCU not only showed they deserve to be here, TCU beat Michigan. They had Michigan fighting from behind all day long. Listen, uh, you know, TCU wants to pull off the upset of all upsets in the national championship game. Max Duggan is going to have to play better than he did. You can't be under 50% completions in that game, but he made plays when necessary. He uh, was pretty good on third downs and knew when to run the football. Was a true dual threat for TCU in this game. Compared to uh, J.J. McCarthy, who... No, was a little bit snake bitten and had Michigan fighting from behind all game long, seemingly. And if this is Jim Harbaugh's final act as Michigan head coach, 
Like, what, what the hell are you thinking going for the Philly special on the first drive of the game? You got fourth down at, at the goal line. You call a timeout, and you come out of the timeout with the Philly special? Who the hell does that? You don't go for a trick play coming out of a timeout. Trick plays are supposed to be when you're going up-tempo, when you're going uh, no huddle, so you catch the opposition off guard. Coming out of a timeout on fourth down in the red zone, the opposition's ready for almost anything there. You weren't going to fool them with that kind of nonsense. And that blowing up in their face kind of began what was a downfall for Michigan. From there, you had Bud Clark's uh, INT for a touchdown. And then you the... the Probably the most controversial moment of this entire weekend when Michigan blew any chance they had at momentum. You get Rod Moore with the interception at midfield with Michigan down by 11, thinking, all right, maybe their offense can start get going here now. Uh, J.J. McCarthy hits a, a long pass down the middle uh, to Roman Wilson that still, to this moment, someone's got to explain to me how that this isn't a touchdown. How can they say that he's marked down at the half yard line? He didn't. He falls to the ground, has the football on top of him, and has control as he's laying in the end zone. I mean, that made absolutely no sense to me. They replayed it and still got the call wrong. And then on the very next play, uh, Michigan fumbles on the snap. And even though TCU didn't score on the the following drive. It just continued what was a just a slow and, and kind of painful day for Michigan. They kept trying to fight back, kept trying to crawl back, but every time in the second half they were seemingly scoring, getting within one, TCU would have a quick answer. And what would what really seemed like the the nail in the coffin for Michigan, even more so than uh, D Winters uh, INT touchdown. Um, was the 76-yard uh, touchdown by Quinton Johnston. Because that put uh, TCU up by 10 again early in the fourth quarter and just kept... At, there's only, only so many times you can try and fight back. You can try and crawl back. And I know Michigan had 500 yards of offense in this game, but they were, you know, they were never able to early on get consistent drives put together. If they got... To third down, they were dead men walking. And now they go crawling home from the playoff for the second year in a row, wondering what could have been in, in blowing what was a great opportunity for them. And like I said, Max Duggan is going to have to play better in the national championship game against Georgia because you know Georgia got a bit of a wake-up call here. Georgia might have gotten the best challenge they're going to see in, in this playoff from what they had to face against Ohio State. Having to work their way back from two uh, two touchdown leads in this game. And you give Stenson Bennett a lot of credit. He was at his best when need to be. Was awesome in that fourth quarter. But they got helped out by um, Ohio State here. First off, losing Marvin Harrison Jr. Uh, was a big detriment to Ohio State's offense. And... You, know, you give Ohio State credit for protecting the kid, but their their offense was not the same once he left uh, over possible concussion concerns. 
And then Kirby Smart, one of the most well-timed, smartest timeouts we've ever seen. He could read that play and got up to the referee as quick as possible. And just milliseconds before Ohio State ran the play, uh, going for a fake punt on fourth down, was able to get a timeout in there and prevented what could have been a game-changing play. Because remember, it's, you know, what was it, uh, 38-27 uh, at that point. Uh, Georgia was still down by 11. Ohio State gets the first down there. They could just try and run out the clock there. But they're able, uh, Georgia's able to prevent them from uh, uh, getting a first down there, forces the punt there, and changes their momentum when on the very next play, Arian Smith has a 76-yard touchdown. And, you know, they finally started to get Brock Bowers in the mix there. He he was quiet that entire first half. But Ohio State's offense was not the same after uh, the Marvin Harrison left. They seemingly had no answers in the first fourth quarter for Smith or Bowers. And not getting that trick play on the fake punt killed any momentum they had. And, and the, you know, they had a shot in the, the final moments of this game, just as the clock is hitting midnight into the new year. But they were unable to convert that uh, 50-yard field goal and allow Georgia to go back to the championship for the second year in a row in hopes of a repeat now at SoFi Stadium uh, this coming Monday. Now, it's not going to be easy because TCU has proven they deserve to be here. Their only loss this year was in uh, the Big 12 championship game in overtime. But Georgia, rightfully so, is a big favorite in this game. And while I wouldn't say I'd be shocked if TCU won this, it would be... A pleasant surprise for all of us that don't have a dog in the fight, that aren't don't have a team a rooting interest in this. While more times than not, I, I root for the SEC and the Big Ten in the, this playoff because they, to me, are still the top two, the top premier conferences in college football. It'd be fun to see one of these underdogs one of these days pull off the shocker and just kind of be one big giant middle finger to historians everywhere. But like I said before, all of that, anything that goes on in the NFL, if they play the schedule as set to be this coming week is nothing as far as importance compared to what DeMar Hamlin is battling, what he's dealing with right now. And you just pray Say a prayer for this kid. Say a prayer for this fa- for his family. Pray that in the hours and days to come that we get some very good, very positive news about this kid continuing on in what I always refer to as this wacky, wonderful, crazy thing we call life. That, my friends, was Keeping It Sports when I'm 3 for Tuesday, January 3rd. 2022. Everyone have a great night. Have a great week. Stay safe. And I'll talk to you guys next week. Till then.
Peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Not least. I'll be back.